Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And by Lafayette Comedy, bringing national comedy shows to Acadiana. From Tula Tacos and Amigos in downtown Lafayette, we're out to lunch with Christian Maida, publisher and editor of The Current. It's business, Acadiana style. Welcome to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. If you're like me, the ocean is kind of terrifying. The horizon doesn't end. It's vast and unknown, like staring into space, only it's lapping at your feet. I mean, I've spent most of my life comfortably on land here in Lafayette, but in business, the ocean is both an apt symbol for opportunity, you like to think of the blue ocean strategy for marketing and innovation, and a great place to make a living. And Louisiana has certainly done that for decades with offshore drilling, shipping, and seafood. Civilization itself has made use of the ocean for commerce for millennia. And despite our long relationship with it, there's still plenty of stuff to figure out about working in deep sea environments. And my guest, Eric Knezik's company Oceanetics, specializes in developing cutting-edge engineering solutions for ocean-going enterprises, including the world's largest, the U.S. Navy. Oceanetics is based in, a- in Annapolis, Maryland, home of the U.S. Naval Academy, Eric's alma mater. But Eric is himself is based right here in Lafayette. Oceanetics does a lot of defense contracting work, including research and development for both the private and public sector, uh, and also specializes in developing renewable ocean-based energy. Eric Knezik, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you. Uh, you know, blood might be thicker than water, but unlike water, it's not a renewable resource. The business of collecting blood is an old one, and it's not, and it's done primarily for serving the medical community. The work is important. Science has yet to develop a suitable substitute for it and hospitals need it on high demand. The nation's largest independent nonprofit blood service provider is Vitalant, which you might know by its previous brand name, United Blood Services. Vitalant was founded in 1943 in Phoenix, Arizona, and has grown to a network of 120 donation centers across the U.S., and it operates here in Lafayette and serves 23 hospitals and 21 parishes across Louisiana. Uh, My guest, Stephanie Kazar, Vitalant's communications director, says just 3% of Louisiana's eligible blood donor population are active donors. That means demand outstrips supply significantly. With local hospitals requiring at least 250 donations each day, Stephanie got her degree in mass comms from LSU in 2008, previously worked in marketing. She's been on the Vitalant team since October of 2020. Stephanie Kazar, welcome to Out to Lunch. Hi, glad to be here. Thank you. So, Eric, um, I rarely ask a question this broad, but I still need to get a firmer handle on what exactly Oceanetics does, right? I mean, it's one thing to say here, engineering, I work in you know, defense contracting, but like, what do you guys build? So in the simplest sense, uh, one of our primary business lines is anti-terrorism barriers. So after the USS coal bombing, uh, the Navy found that it was vulnerable in harbor. And if you can imagine a floating fence that is designed to withstand hurricanes, but also designed to stop a terrorist boat from approaching a U.S. Navy vessel. So we manufacture and install those for the Navy. We're the primary installer of that for the U.S. Navy and other foreign navies and commercial enterprises that have that need. So that's one business line. Okay. Another is heavy weather moorings. Uh, moorings are anchors, big, big anchor, big chain. Yeah. In South Louisiana, we're used to that for maybe offshore oil type stuff. Mm-hmm. Ours are different. When we moor things for the Navy, we're typically mooring old aircraft carriers. You know, when an aircraft carrier, when we're done with it, we're not really done with it. We're only done with it for now. We keep it on the books for decades. It doesn't have a crew. It doesn't have a power plant. So it needs to stay there when the big storm comes. 
So we moor those type of vessels. And there's many other things, underwater cables. There are a lot of things the U.S. Navy needs underwater and in the ocean, and we do those things for the Navy. So I'm going to ask what's going to sound like a pretty dumb question, but 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 when I looked over some of the research, I saw that like you know ocean renewable energy, right? And I think the ocean is sort of this vast resource, and and but it wasn't obvious to me what that actually meant. I mean, does that mean that you guys are developing like turbine systems I and mean, things that are actually providing power for? Uh, you know, ocean-going vessels, or is it that you're harnessing it to use power for you know, things on shore? I mean, what's happening? Yeah, you could think of us more as the implementers. So there are a lot of technologies that are emerging out there. You have wave energy, there's current energy, they're using uh, the thermoclines in the ocean for energy, wind energy. All of that can be harnessed in the ocean. Most of the developers of the energy harnessing, right, are research labs, universities, and there are a lot of uh, companies out there doing that. We help make their innovations practical. We help install those innovations, make sure that, I mean, you know, a lot of things are great on paper, but once you install them, maintain them, imagine them being out there during a storm, wave activity every day, you know, that's the type of stuff that we come in and help them with. Yeah, wow. So, so Stephanie, um, just 3% just of 3%. people who can give blood do give blood, and that's shocking. I figured it'd be low, um, but that's really low. And so, I mean, I first thought is, is okay, well, does this mean that like hospitals every day are kind of on the verge of a shortage? Is it that bad? Yes and no. Um, during the summer, we see our biggest decrease in donors. Um, and this year, especially, it's been a whole nother level of bad. Um, I say this in the kindest possible way. This is the summer of people to be selfish, myself included, because, you know, we went through so many months of not being able to be selfish. You know, we couldn't go on vacation. We couldn't do all of those things we wanted to do. You know, we couldn't go to the store without a mask on. Mm -hmm. And so now people are going on vacation. People are getting out there. They're getting on the road. And blood donation is just not on people's minds, understandably so. And this summer has just been a huge struggle for us. We were recently on a critical shortage. Um, and that's nationwide. That's not just by talent. That's all of the blood banks nationwide. So we've recently recently been able to come off of the word shortage and now we're just at a critical need but still we don't use the word critical unless we mean it you know wow. it, it's it's a it's a red alert you know big alarm bell word for us so i'm kind of curious more about the the way you know i guess blood extraction has changed over the years i mean it would seem like generally speaking it's kind of the same thing but i mean have we gotten better at it i mean is it that we've gotten more efficient. I mean, tell me, talk to me about the technology of drawing blood. You're, sure. So um, I'm not the medical professional by any means, so sure. I'll tell you what I can. Um, yeah. it, it has progressed over the years. Um, you know, a lot of blood centers started out as a World War II, just a, you know, almost kind of like a neighborhood uh, effort to, to help with war efforts. And so it's obviously progressed from then. And it is a very um, interesting system now. There's a lot of automation involved. Um, there are a lot of different processes now. Instead of just giving whole blood, now you can donate just plasma. Now you can donate double red cells where they actually extract you know, the whole blood from your body. Mm. The, the machine will take just the red cells out and then it actually puts the rest of those blood components back into your body mm -hmm. with a saline solution. So it's really a neat process. Um, I actually did that myself for the first time um, last week. So I like to try out all the different things, you know, so I can be a, a good guinea pig when nice. I need to talk about it. But uh, it's it really has come a long way. Um, and the issue that we're seeing is just that donors are not keeping it at the forefront of their minds. Mm -hmm. And our aging donor population, the ones who considered 
giving blood, you know, just part of their daily life, something that they did, something every two months, they got it on their schedules and they just, you know, took care of it, just like you would pay the, the water bill. Yeah. Um, people just don't think that way anymore, especially the younger generations. Wow. So, so Eric, I mean, I'm sort of just fascinated by the idea that, you know, you, you have a company that you start maybe with some people, people like the, your typical startup business story, right? I had an idea and here it is. I put it in the market, people bought it. But you know, you're you're dealing with something where you're dealing with the U.S. government, right? Typically, you know, they're 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 going to put your technology to use to protect American sailors or or whatever. I mean, how do you even get into the business of like you know, I'm going to get a market startup here or whatever it is to say like, hey, Uncle Sam, I have an idea that will protect your ships from future terrorist attacks. I mean, how do you even get your foot in that door? Yeah, for me, it was uh, right place, right time, and also. You know, now now looking at myself as a 20-something-year-old, uh, I guess it was about 21 years ago, uh, realizing that that young man had the vision of seeing opportunity, which, you know, when I counsel people on entrepreneurism, I'm like, hey, you got to have an eye for opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, I graduated the Naval Academy. I was an ocean engineer. The Navy sent me to graduate school as an ocean engineer. I uh, went to Texas A&M. I served in the Seabees and then became a diver for the Navy. Um, the day after graduating, or the day before, I should say, graduating dive school, the USS Cole was bombed. Mm. So that's, and I went to my next command, and when I got there, they were like, hey, you're the, you're the new barrier lieutenant. You're the guy that's going to start this whole, you're going to work with our engineers and we're going to start this barrier program, because we didn't have one before then. Um, so my last two years in the Navy, uh, my, my commitment ended about two years later, was flying around the world. Uh, working with the local officers at the bases to develop what was going to be the port security barrier program. Um, I was finishing my time in the Navy. I saw opportunity with, uh, actually, during that period of time, 9-11 uh, happened, right? So 9-11 happens in August. I got out of the Navy a year after that. So... You know, the war machine started. I mean, the U.S. war machine started, funding came, and I kind of saw that vision. I was like, hey, I, I'm young, but I'm an engineer, I'm competent, and I know all there is to know really about this field, and there's funding coming. I think I can put all this together. And I worked with my current business partner. Um, and said, hey, I have this idea. He had just started a business, and I'm like, hey, let's get together, you know. Uh, with what you've started, with what I think I can bring to you, I think we can do something, and we did. Wow. So, you, you know, Eric just mentioned a couple of you know kind of big flashbulb events in American history, and I mean, I, I guess one thing that brings to mind uh, to me, Stephanie, is like you know you think about nine eleven, and and you know does does the nature of when a person shows up to give blood change based on something that they perceive in the news, like you know, hey, there was you know this big thing happened, this big disaster, and people need blood. Does that actually compel people to do it? Do, do you see spikes around that? or is Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's crazy the spikes that we'll see when it comes to things like that. You yeah. know, obviously I was still in high school for 9-11, but um, in talking with my coworkers who've been with Vitalant for years, they said, you know, people were lining the parking lot. I mean, they were having to turn people away because we were you know, there's just so many people that wanted to donate blood. And, you know, nowadays we would never turn people away. Yeah. <laughs> We're begging you to come to donate blood. But yeah. um, a co-worker of mine in El Paso, Texas, same thing. They had that shooting last year. And the communities will just galvanize around these these events. Mm -hmm. But um, in my mind, you know, why do we need a tragedy 
to inspire people to want to give back. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, here, here's kind of a, you guess it's a silly question, but I mean, I know people like will give plasma because they get paid for it. Why don't you guys just pay people to give them blood? I mean, like, <laughs> if, it's, like if it seems like if you need it so badly and, and like, maybe there's a market for it, right? I mean, I don't mean to capitalize on everything, but I mean, why is that the case? Right, right. Well, so what we do, because we are a nonprofit, you know, obviously we're not paying people for plasma and our plasma is actually... Um, given to patients in hospitals. So yeah. it's a little bit different from the plasma uh, centers that, that do pay because that plasma is used for medical research oh. and things like that. So there is definitely a market oh. for it. Um, whereas the blood and the plasma and those components that we collect, we're not selling that to hospitals. Yeah. Um, we, we work with the hospitals to make sure that they have the supplies that they need. But yeah. very different uh, you know, business model, I guess you could call it. Sure. Eric, I mean, you mentioned earlier that you, know, you do work contract with the U.S. government but other you know countries too and I, I've always been sort of just curious about how that actually works like the idea of being a, a country or, or a company you know where you're you know you're you obviously were in the Navy you're a patriot you grew up here but you could sell your wares to other nations I presume nations that are not at war with the United States but I mean like how does that actually work where you know you're developing technologies with the idea that it's going to serve the American military but also potentially um, you know militaries for another nation well it's not simple okay. all right first off it's not simple <laughs> um anything that we sell uh mm -hmm. military technology defense technologies even uh we have to get u.s government approval on uh there are i they're called itar regulations yeah. um the department of and this might be one of those things you don't quote me on but uh <laughs> uh pretty sure we have to get state department approval yeah. and we're actually going through that right now with one of our technologies to sell to some foreign governments. Mm -hmm. uh, we have previous approval, but we've developed some new technology, and the upgrade in technology has to get approved by the um, U.S. government yeah. prior to doing that. Outside of that, it's uh, international contracts, which is extremely complicated and becomes extremely expensive. I mean, we have to do, and we're a relatively small company. We have about 50 employees throughout the country, but we have to hire those, you know, high dollar lawyers that only work on international contracts and may be very specific for s certain countries. Mm -hmm. So, you mentioned earlier that, and I don't know if this was just in passing, right? Like, but these barriers, um, you were kind of talking about them mostly for the perspective of using them for, for military um, purposes. But I mean, are there civilian applications for that same kind of there, barrier? There are civilian applications, <laughs> but primarily for. Uh, if you can imagine a commercial shipyard that might be building some sort of high-value asset, whether it be a U.S. Navy vessel or some other t type of high-value mm -hmm. vessel or high-value asset as far as uh, power plants, things like that. Mm -hmm. But is it still for the same purpose? To still prevent for the same purpose. But, but like, so it's not like you could develop a barrier that would be useful to... For a storm or something like that. No, this is this is solely to keep the bad guys away from the good guys. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mater. I'm talking with Eric Knezik of Oceanetics. And Stephanie Kazar of Vitalant. I mean, Stephanie, I, I, I guess I, I'm curious, you know, how tactics then change for y'all in terms of, you know, if you know that disaster is one way to get people to give you blood, and you can't. I presume, just make disasters happen. I've uh, tried. It hasn't worked yet, but no. <laughs> you Joking. <laughs> you can't just go out there and just give, give me another one of those disasters. We need one of those. We need a lot more blood. Uh, I mean, what are sort of the more sustained tactics that you guys can use to actually get people in the door? So 
the way that I like to think about it, and I have to give Aileen Bennett a lot of credit with this. She's one of our uh, community leadership council members, and uh, I'm sure you know her. I, I love her dearly, but she had this. I stole this show from her. Did you? Mm-hmm. Wait, I think I knew that. Oh, well, <laughs> she's a doll. Yeah. And she um, she came to one of our meetings, and we were just talking about how can we get people to understand how important this is? And she said, um, there's this quote or this story about the uh, anthropologist Margaret Mead. And she was one time asked, what is your idea of when civilization began? And, you know, people thought she would say like, oh, the first uh, clay pot or, you know, the first fire or something like that. And she said it was the first time that a, a skeleton was discovered that had a broken femur bone that had been repaired. Mm-hmm. Because in the animal kingdom, you know, think about it. If you break your leg you're not moving. <laughs> so you're kind of, uh, you're, you're out there for the elements and other animals to take advantage of you. And the fact that in human culture, someone stayed with someone that had that broken leg, nursed them back to health until they could walk again. That's so kind. And, and the idea that giving blood is, it is one of the kindest things that you can do because you don't know who your blood is going to because it's the blood on the shelves that is helping people in hospitals. We'll have replenishment drives and things like that for cancer patients and things like that. But you know, it's not like I go give blood for my friend Susie and then my blood is given to Susie. My blood is put on the shelf. Susie is already receiving the blood that someone else has donated. And so it's the kindest thing you can do for your fellow man. And that's what I'm really hoping that we can inspire this younger generation to give back and just to understand that this is something you can do that doesn't cost you a dime. It barely takes your time and you can literally save a life. I mean, you, you can't beat that. So have attitudes about giving blood changed? I mean, is it just a fact that people in, you know, under 40 or whatever, I mean, is it, different and do you have a sense of why it's mostly because a lot of our blood donors start out at the high school or college age you know when the blood bus pulls up so you get out of your fifth hour math class right so you can go donate blood and skip class so it'll carry on throughout you know the later high school years into college if you see the blood bus parked out at the the union or the quad or whatever you the case may be at your college but once you get into that kind of adult, you know, you start adulting, right? You have kids, you're starting your first job. It just falls by the wayside. And this is a consistent thing that we're seeing across the nation where people in their late twenties, you know, all the way through really their mid forties into their fifties, they're just not doing it. Hmm. So, uh, it just isn't on people's radars and I really don't know why or how else to explain it. But for some people, it's just, you know, some people get it and some people do it regularly and some don't. Yeah. Eric, I mean, if attitudes about the kind of work that you do changed, I mean, it seems like, you know, Americans go through different relationships with the U.S. military and foreign policy and stuff. I mean, is that just noise for somebody in your business or do you have to kind of think about the politics of war? I mean, it's a dirty business or an ugly business. It can be. It is. And I mean... <clears throat> Good thing is most of the stuff that we do is programmed money that, you know, takes maybe three to five years to program out. So projects that we're typically doing are not absolutely emergent like we have to have it now. It's something that somebody thought about five years ago or three years ago and say, hey, we need to increase our security posture. Therefore, let's program this money and install this system. So um, we do have emergent things like, hey, this is a current threat. You know, or we have specific intelligence for this place or this type of infrastructure. Uh, we need something now, but it 
it's not that common. Hmm. I mean, are you guys mostly working on, if I use the term, like defensive material, things that are like protecting soldiers and feel like I don't know enough about how the military works to make any sort of discerning definition. But I, I guess I'm saying, like, I, I imagine the difference between designing things to shoot at people right. and designing things Absolutely. to sort of... Everything we do is defensive. Okay. Um, or we're mooring... I mean, we do more old ships, which were offensive. Yeah, yeah. But no, typically everything we do is defensive. Yeah, I mean, it, has that ever... Like, I mean, obviously you have a military background, but I mean, I guess I'm wondering, like, if that, you know, the idea that, like, you know, part of what you do is, is to contract with... You know, you described it earlier, the American war machine, right? I mean, does that present for you any sort of like, I don't know, what person with a moral quandary, I suppose? No, absolutely not. Not yeah. for me. I mean, I, I went to the U.S. Naval Academy, right? Yes. I served 10 years in the Navy, so yeah. absolutely not. I have uh, no qualms about the need to defend our country sure. and the things that we have to do, which are sometimes ugly and sometimes people don't want to think about it. Sure. But we have to do those things in order to defend our country. Yeah. And to take it another level, I like the fact that I continue to serve. I mean, I joined the Navy in 1992. I got out in 2002. And since then, I've had the opportunity to continue to serve our country, helping bolster our defense Yeah, just sure. as a contractor. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a lot of what, you know, kind of combines the two of you, right, is there's people do this work out of a sense of duty, right, or a sense of service. I mean, um, I, I do want to ask though, Stephanie, I mean, like, what's the primary barrier that people have? I mean, it's such a low rate right? 3%? Is it just people that are afraid of needles? Is it just that they don't think about it? I mean, like, I'll tell you, I don't like needles. I don't like the idea of it. But I mean, like, is it primarily people just can't overcome some sort of fear? What is it? That is a big piece of it is that fear factor. You know, I don't think anyone really enjoys, um, you know, having to give blood or, you know, getting um, if you have to go give blood for a, a blood test or something like that. You know, nobody very few people are going to say, yes, you know, this is what I, I was waiting for this. Mm -hmm. So there is definitely that fear factor. It is a very uncomfortable ask for people. And a lot of people that we've talked to who've never donated, you know, they say, well, no one ever asked me to. And so, you know, hi, <laughs> I'm asking you to, um, but it, it is a huge barrier. Um, it's, it's a hard thing to market, you know, come stick out your arm, let's put a needle in it and let's take some of your blood. You know, you might faint after if you didn't eat a good meal. Uh, you know, there, there, there's a lot of negatives that, that could happen, but the ultimate thing is, is a positive. Yeah. And, you know, my favorite thing about it is that when your blood is sent to a hospital, um, you'll actually get a text message that'll tell you, you know, hey, your blood just went to a hospital to help a patient. And I mean, I'm on cloud nine for the rest of the day, knowing that I actually helped someone. So do you, do y'all still give the cookies? We do. We have a wonderful assortment of snacks. Yeah. I mean, has that changed? Has that game changed over the years where it's like, you know, we got to up our dessert game. I think this is a big piece of it. Oh, we've got Rice Krispie Trees. We've got uh, chocolate chip cookies. We have Nutter Butters. Yeah. And I know we've got a fourth one that's not coming to mind. But oh, yeah. And we got the salty <laughs> snacks, too. So come get a snack. Yeah. I mean, Eric, I, mean, are you, I, I got to put you on the spot. Are you a guy that gives blood? I haven't given blood in a long time. And uh I, my excuse is foreign travel. Some of the places that I travel, yeah. uh, I've been told that, you know, I can't give blood after that. What, is it just because of the possible contaminants in your disease. blood? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah disease, for a long time um, it was like mad cow disease, yeah. you know, and there's, there's all sorts of different type diseases. Zika yeah. and all of that, which Zika is actually one yeah. that just recently they've kind of taken off the list of, of possible uh, yeah. And issues. since then, I mean, I haven't changed my travel routines at all. I still travel to those places, so I have not, you know, haven't. I think the last time was probably in high school. You know? I know I donated a lot back then, but yeah, <laughs> things have changed. I did not know that that was a big issue, right? Like, oh, it's a, you were in this country and you might have this disease. That's fascinating. I mean, um, so 
You know, Eric, you know, we talked a little bit briefly about um, sort of the renewable energy piece of this. I mean, but you guys also do some work for the oil and gas industry. I mean, are you finding that that mixture is changing at all now that we've kind of seen a decline in offshore drilling? Yeah, we don't. Okay. So we, I tried, and I'll start with that. Yeah. When I moved, I call this home. When I moved back home, yeah. uh, it was in 2005. I started the business. I lived up in Maryland. Uh, I'm from Lafayette. Yeah. I moved back home. Uh, I shortly thereafter uh, bought a building out in Broussard. Uh, a lot of the things that we do, we do fabrication. So we weld steel, we do urethane. So we do a lot of the things that the oil field needs. We work offshore, we dive. Um, I thought it would be an easy transition to go from government to commercial. And some companies do it really well. But what I realized after about two or three years is we're different. You know, we are a federal contractor. The way we. Every, the way we run the business, the way that we bid on projects, proposals, our quality control program, everything that we do is geared to the U.S. government, primarily. Um, it just didn't, just, I was beating my head against the wall, to be honest with you. Yeah. you know? Stephanie, I'm a little surprised that I was surprised to learn this, which is that there isn't a synthetic substitute for blood. Like, yeah. it would just seem that we would have developed something like that. You would think. Why not? I don't know the medical reasoning behind that, but uh, I'm with you. I, I find that mind-boggling. This is something that I learned when I started at Vitalant just back in October. And so for me, you know, you think about it, they, they can they can grow just about anything in sure. a lab these days, yeah. right? So I don't know um, what's being done. I know that we have a whole research institute. I couldn't tell you what they're doing over there. You know, we have a number of different initiatives and studies that are happening. But this is one that, that I really don't know a whole lot about. But it's it's fascinating to me that we can produce just about anything in a lab, but not blood. It just feels like something that DARPA would be doing already, right, Eric? I mean, like like the, like the U.S. military would have figured out a long time ago that they could. They just... may be. I don't know. I mean, we're we're actually working with DARPA on some things, but it's definitely not blood. Okay, that's yeah. so cool. So, I, I, can you? I never remember the acronym. Can you? It is a Department of Defense Research and Development arm. Right. So for rapidly developed technologies. So if the three of us come up with something today that. Hey, we, we, we just invented blood or, you know, synthetic blood for soldiers. Let's get this to market quickly. The federal procurement process typically, like the typical, is long and painful. Mm-hmm. It just is. I mean, a, a procurement is, you know, 500 pages typically, and that's for the simplest thing. DARPA helps expedite that process for new technologies that may help the warfighter. I and mean, that's what they call them, the warfighter. And, and if, if, I think DARPA is like produced stuff that we use in the civilian world, right? Absolutely, I mean, it's kind of yeah. like, like one of these things like you can trace it back to DARPA. It's kind of insane. I mean, like a really, really interesting thing that a lot of people right. don't know. Autonomy about. is an area that we're working right now. Uh, that's an emerging market, obviously, in the military. So uh, autonomy, autonomous vehicles, underwater vehicles, aerial vehicles, surface vehicles. Uh, DARPA is working in that realm uh, quite extensively right now. I believe it was, the, I think they developed the Rice Krispie Treat that y'all use in the... They may have. I think they do. Next up is synthetic blood from Rice yeah. Krispie Treats to blood. <laughs> Well, I suppose sometimes it's better to like kind of know what your mission is, right? Right. And focus on that and, and do that well. And I mean, it certainly seems like the work that both of you guys do is very mission-oriented, service-oriented, duty-oriented, and, and the sort of thing that you know most people can get behind. So um, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. Um, it's been a pleasure having you both on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. This is great. 
Uh, my guests on Out to Lunch at KDN today have been Eric Knezic of Oceanetics and Stephanie Kitzarg of Vitalent. We edited the show to fit into the time slot here in KRVS, and you can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Eric and Stephanie and what they do by listening to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast, which you can find anywhere you get your podcast and on our website, itsacadiana.com. If you want to know what we look like, you can find photos from this show on itsacadiana.com and on our social media. Uh, Out to Lunch Acadiana is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRVS 88.7 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Technical producer is Eric Merle. Today's show was engineered by Josh Crapo. Our associate producers are Molly Richard and Jan Risher. Our researcher is Claire Como. I'm Christian Mater. I'm the editor of The Current, Lafayette's nonprofit source for local news. For more news and commentary, head over to thecurrentla.com and sign up for our newsletter. I'll see you here again next time around the lunch table for more business Acadiana style and Out to Lunch Acadiana. Bye-bye. Out to Lunch Acadiana is recorded live over lunch at Tula Tacos and Amigos. Tula Tacos and Amigos offers street-style tacos, margaritas, and an open-air courtyard on Jefferson Street in the heart of downtown Lafayette. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And by Lafayette Comedy, bringing national comedy shows to Acadiana. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed. And at MitchellForeman.com. 